0: Scripture today is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. I want to say to whoever left the uh, king cake on the front pew, thank you, because it doesn't have a name on it that I see, but I'm going to assume it's mine if it's still there when the service is over, so thank you. Uh, also, there's been a uh, a really nice vest, kind of like the one Jason Hall's wearing, except for it's... Uh, it's kind of a tan color, and it's been hanging in that hallway, and it's just my size, so thank you also. Um, it looks really nice, and please claim it before I do, so. it on every day. Yeah, I do. I'm like, this has been here how many weeks now? So, uh, really, if that's your lost and found item, please pick that up. Um, Would you stand now in honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God? Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead and said, go into that village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it and untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, "'Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings in the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Praise God in the highest heaven!' And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. "'Who is this?' they asked." And the crowds replied, It is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read and study this passage, which many have described as the triumphal entry, Lord, may you be triumphant in our hearts. God, may we come to understand how special you are and the plan that you The Father with the Son and the Spirit formed in eternity past and, and how your Son Jesus, Lord, is the mediator so that we may come to you and how much we should honor and praise him. Lord, be with us now as we study this passage. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You can be seated. So as I mentioned last week, we are beginning this series called The Last Days of Jerusalem, looking at the uh, last week or so of Jesus' life before he went to the cross. Now, I want to something I didn't say last week, and I want to go ahead and say, this is not going to be a comprehensive look at everything. Um, maybe if I did this series every year for the next five or six years, I could get around to covering a lot of it. But actually, uh, when you look at the Gospels, They zoom in on certain things, like the birth of Christ, and and then they'll zoom out, and you don't hear anything about Jesus for 12 years, and then you hear about him in the temple, and then boom, you don't hear anything again uh, until his 30th year or thereabouts. And so they're very selective in what what they do. And so actually fully one-third of the New Testament Gospels is centered on the last week of Christ. So I cannot preach through one-third of the Gospels. You do not want to hear me preach through one-third of the Gospels in the next five or six weeks. But we'll be taking snapshots at some of the events in the last week of Christ. As we come to this one today, um, we remember that in the immediate past, uh, there had been that, that time when they had met with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Mary had anointed Jesus, and it was not long before that that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and that's one of the reasons some of the religious leaders wanted to kill him is because they we want him to stay down this time because he's attracting so much attention. And so we come to this passage, which we often um, look to on what we call Palm Sunday, and we see Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem on the final week of his life. I've entitled this sermon Planning, Prophecy, and Praise because of what all went into this passage. It begins with Jesus and his disciples entering in Jerusalem, and they go through this little area called Bethphage, not the same as Bethany. It's, we don't know anything more about it from archaeology. We don't know anything more about it uh, from the Bible. We just know it was some little village right there close to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to go get these two donkeys. There's the mother and there's the colt, and if anybody asks you what's going on, you know, you you need to go ahead and just let them know, say the Lord has need of them and they're going to let you have them. And it's interesting that it works out exactly that way. They go and they they pick these donkeys out. And then someone says, hey, you, what are you doing over there? You're not Bob. Those are Bob's donkeys or, you know, whatever their name was. And they say, hey, the Lord has need of them. And you kind of have to look at all the different Gospels together to get the full story. But it's interesting. Different biblical scholars have different opinions. Some will say that uh, this shows that uh, Jesus had already made the connections and planned everything out, and he had sent messages, and, and these people were already. And other people say, well, Jesus, you know, he thought this out, but he didn't talk to any of those people. It was just a supernatural thing where he knew where the donkeys were going to be, and, and he told the disciples to go there, and those people's hearts were supernaturally predisposed to let them go off with the donkey. Kind of like if you had just, someone showed up, hey, what are you doing getting into to their Honda? Well, um, God has need of this Honda. And you said, oh, okay, go ahead and take my Honda, you know? I mean, that would be kind of miraculous if that happened. Um, There's no way to prove either way. You know, it could have happened either way. There's no way to really prove it. But either one involved a lot of planning on Jesus' part. Now, planning is kind of a dirty word a lot of times. We don't like to plan. And even as Christians, we often like to think, you know, I'm going to live out my Christian faith just because I'm going to be filled with the Spirit every day, and I'm just going to automatically do, you know, whatever God puts in front of me. And there's a lot of that that's true. We should be filled with God's Spirit. We should be in His Word and in prayer and just sensitive to what He has right around us. But, you know, oftentimes things are not done without planning. Let's say, for instance, a month from now we, we end up raising 3000 or $5,000 Uh, for this missionary family car, and, and other churches raise the rest, and they get this new car. That wouldn't happen if it weren't for our missions committee reading the things that go out about missions, seeing this opportunity, getting excited, passing it on to our session, saying, hey, this sounds like something our church, the session gets excited, yeah, this is something good, we all agree on it, we do a children's sermon on it, we put it on PowerPoint, and we put it in the bulletin, and and in the newsletter, and we talk about it, and all that stuff, that good, that I know is going to come out of this, it comes, not because we just... Oh, you know, I'm randomly going to write a check to the denomination for a missionary car. <coughs> now, that would be great if somebody did that. But it comes because of planning. And that's one of many things that I want to encourage you in your life, just as you just go through your day and say, God, whatever you have for me, whatever you have ahead of me, make me ready. That's awesome to, so in an instant, serve God. But I also want to encourage you in your life as a Christian to make plans, to say, God, what are some long-term things? What could I do? How could you use me between now and next year if I started working on something and planned and prepared and and made it happen? And God does so much through plans. In fact, the Bible tells us that he made a plan before time began, and that's how you and I are saved. You know, God isn't just winging it as he goes along. He's got a plan. And I want to encourage each of you as Christians to make a plan. Well, this goes off however you want to say it, whether it was a, a matter of Jesus making connections or a supernatural thing, everything works out just like Jesus said it would. And so the disciples go, and they get these two donkeys, and one of them's a colt, <clears throat> has never been ridden on before. And, um, and, and they bring these two donkeys, and they say, here you go, Jesus. And they don't have any saddles. There were no saddles on them at the time when they got them. So they just throw their clothes on them. And I guess they don't know exactly which one Jesus is going to ride. And uh, the Bible says he sat down on them. Um, I think some translations say it to make it clear. Because there's actually been some people. People can be funny, the things they get out of the Bible. There's actually been people who, when, they, when it said he sat on them, They pictured Jesus on both donkeys at one time, and uh, the Bible said them. Well, the them referred to the garments, okay? That was the plural there. But Jesus sat on the younger one, the older one, the mother was there, so that the younger one would do what it was supposed to do. If the mother could be led along, the young colt could be led along as well. Now, again, this was no accident that he rides in uh, on a a colt. In fact, he he um, is following some uh, very uh, important prophecy that was made in the Old Testament, some, some, some lines that were quoted in the Old Testament. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to do exactly what that was talking about. And so there is the, uh, it's even quoted in Matthew. Um, in some of the other Gospels, you have to just kind of know in your head somehow that it, was, that it was a prophecy from the Old Testament. But In Matthew, he says in verse five, "Tell the people of Jerusalem." Now, it's got a that's in NLT, and it's got a star by it because that's not literally what it says. Literally, and some of your Bibles will say, "Listen up, daughters of of Zion." Well, uh, a lot of people don't know what that means. If I was to say, hey, do you know about Zion? A lot of y'all would say, yeah, he's this kid who plays for Duke. He's an amazing basketball player. He got hurt the other night when his tennis shoe blew out. And and that might be all that a lot of people know about Zion is this guy named Zion Williamson. But Zion was actually a hill, and it's Z-I-O-N. It was actually the tallest point in the city of Jerusalem, and it became a way to refer to all of Jerusalem itself just by referring to its highest point, Zion. So when in the Old Testament he said daughters of Zion, he's basically saying, listen up, all you people of Jerusalem. And and that uh, is a a phrase from Isaiah. And then the the bulk of the prophecy comes from Zechariah 9.9. Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. There, are many, there have been many people over the ages who have tried to say, Jesus was no son of God, Jesus was no Messiah, he was simply a teacher, and all you Christians have just built up all this other stuff about him and made him into this God figure. But the fact is that we understand Uh, from many passages in the New Testament. Although Jesus, early in his ministry, he said, don't tell everybody I'm the Messiah yet. I want to keep this quiet. When he was ready to reveal himself, he did a lot of things just like this to intentionally say, hey, all you people, all of his Jewish, uh, the Jewish people in the crowd who knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards, and they knew that there was this passage that talked about, A king who was coming, one who was coming one day, would come in, not on a great war horse, not in a great carriage with a big crown and a scepter, but on a lowly donkey. And just as this was um, there in the Old Testament, prophesied in Zechariah, Jesus was saying, I am intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. I am going to come in with a message. And, you know, we understand that a lot of of people... uh, Kind of think their car is the message, right? Now, I didn't grow up like that. My dad, he was an engineer, but he drove to Ingalls Shipyard every single day to to work over there. By the seawater, cars would rust out. So he was not going to drive something fancy and just, just for it to sit in that shipyard and rust out. So he drove a Pinto. Those were fine, okay? And, and then a Ford Tempo was kind of the next thing after that. He didn't get a nice car till after he retired. But most of us are a little more personal, and we think our car says something about us, or that's what society says. And so you got folks that have more in their car than they do in their house, right? It's so interesting. We're obsessed about the ride we arrive in. Well, Jesus' ride was making a statement about him. It was saying, I'm coming in as a king as a prophesied king, as the anointed Messiah. But I am not the king that you are expecting. I am not the king who comes on here on a white stallion, on a war horse. I am not the king that comes in privileged with rings and jewelry all over me, riding in a fancy carriage. I am a king who is coming in humble and lowly to save you, not from the Romans that you're worried about. Yeah, I'll take care of those ungodly Romans eventually but i'm saving you from the greatest thing you need to be saved from and that is from your sins and so as he rides this in the crowd begins to spread their garments out on the road ahead of them again they this tells you they got it they understood what his ride meant because this is something that they would do when a monarch when a king, when an absolute ruler was coming through, they were saying, hey, you're, we're yours to do with whatever, even if you ride right over us. That was, that was the message that was uh, given when they threw down their garments ahead of Jesus on the road. They were treating him as a king. And they were doing this with actions, but also with words. Because right there in the middle of this huge crowd ahead of him and behind him, they all uproar. This uproar comes. they, They all come out and they start shouting. Hosanna for the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The word Hosanna... Was kind of like something we might say, like hallelujah or amen, but the literal saying, now some translate it praise God, but it literally meant God save. It literally meant God. So they were just like our choir sang out, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. They were saying, Jesus save, Jesus save. We want you, we need a savior. Now, the sad thing is we understand that, again, they weren't exactly sure yet of what kind of Savior he was. And so later on, many would turn away in fear or doubt or even rejection when they realized that he was not this military leader, but he had come to save them from their sins. Jesus here comes in. They say, hallelujah, praise God, hosanna for the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting there from Psalm 118. It was one of the Psalms that are, that are called the Songs of Ascent. And by the way, that, the ascent, that's talking about going up. You never hear the Bible speaking of going down to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter whether they're coming from the north, south, east, or west. They always say going up to Jerusalem because it refers to the altitude. It refers to Mount Zion. And so you always spoke of going up to Jerusalem. And as these ancient Hebrews were going up to Jerusalem every year on an annual basis for the Passover festival, they would sing to one another. And as they got to the temple... And they got there as they saw the other pilgrims coming in. They would say, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. That is, if you're here to worship like us, you're going to be blessed just like we are. But here for Jesus, instead of this being said at the temple as one of the many worshipers, they are all saying this and calling this out to him as he enters into the city. In other words, the meaning here is higher. You're not just blessed because you're here to worship. You're blessed because you are the one that we are here to worship. And they praise God in the highest of heavens. The Bible tells us that the whole city was in an uproar. I want you to understand that um, think about a city, uh, a place that just swells because of some big event. You know, we're all used to uh, Starkville, right? Uh, when the kids are in school, there's this population. <laughs> when the kids are out of school, I was talking to a business owner, and she said, we barely make it during summer break, you know. But then the students come back, and, and we understand like a city like New Orleans. When Mardi Gras comes, whew, this huge crowd comes in, and they got to get lots of extra security. Well, imagine this city, and it was a city. It wasn't just a village. Jerusalem was a, a strong city of perhaps 100,000 or 150,000 in that day. But experts tell us and they, they had these things actually in recorded history because they know how many lambs, there was records of how many lambs were slain. And they know that one lamb could suffice for up to 10 people. And they can do all the math and they can tell us from a Passover that was only 10 years removed from this Passover, so it probably wasn't much different, that the city would swell in size from 100 and 150,000 or so to over 2 million. Now imagine all these people, all these crowds, all in one place. And all of a sudden, say, 25,000, 50,000 of them start yelling and cheering and saying, Hosanna. And, and they're even doing these palm branches, which were a symbol of national, uh, Israel's national might and power. They're doing all of these things. And of course, everyone says, what in the world is going on? The people in charge. The Romans and the people, the religious leaders, they're like, what's going on? And they got rather concerned. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, isn't this interesting? They have just seen Jesus claim and the crowds acclaim him as king. And yet, they're not fully invested. They're yet not yet fully believing. And they say, we're not going out on a limb. We're not going to get our, our necks cut. We're, we're not going to, to be you know uh, caught up in this whole thing if there's trouble. Because you know, there's, this sounds like trouble when the officials start going around, who is this guy? All I know is he's Jesus from, from Nazareth. <laughs> That's it. Don't ask me to say anything more than that. It's interesting when our faith and belief is easy and in a place that's affirmed, how we can stand up and say we love Jesus, we praise him, and yet when it gets tough and yet we are challenged, then the true test comes of our faith and our belief. Planning, prophecy, and praise. God had a plan, and one small part of that plan was his triumphal entry. That plan involved prophecy from the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, that Jesus purposefully, intentionally embraced his identity as the coming Messiah. And the people called out in praise, save us, save us. And yet not long after, some would say, he's Jesus, he's from Nazareth, that's all I know. I want you to understand that this story is not simply something about the past, a little history lesson for us, but it says a great deal about our future. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we hear about this praise and these palm branches again. The Apostle John says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. From every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches with their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Just as those who were touched by Jesus 2,000 years ago on the way into Jerusalem called out Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us. We will one day stand before him with our brothers and sisters in Christ from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every time period. And we will all together unite in saying, Jesus, you did save us. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. And we will praise him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would you bow with me? Father God, we don't give you enough praise. God, we often praise ourselves. Uh, We praise luck or coincidence or happenstance or our own abilities or what someone else did for us. But Father, you alone are worthy of our ultimate praise. Sure, we can compliment. Sure, we can give credit to people for what they've done. But God, ultimately... The final credit belongs to you, the final praise and authority. And one day we will spend eternity praising you. We will spend eternity serving you and honoring and recognizing Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, as we think about the magnificent plan of salvation that began even before this world was formed, Lord, help us to be grateful that we may blow off planning, but you don't. Your meticulous, inspired, perfect plan throughout the ages overcame sin and hell and the grave through your son Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and then to the tomb, but then he rose again. And he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand, right now with you, Father. And he intercedes for us, and he prays for us, and he awaits the day in which he will come and receive us again. Father, help us to recognize your glory, your power, your majesty, your might, and to give you all the praise which you are due. God, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.